Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of the pastors on staff here in Redlands, California. Today we are starting a brand new series, not in a book of the Bible, but instead on the topic of biblical contradictions. I am currently in my third year at George Fox University working on a doctoral degree, and my work has primarily focused in how to process biblical contradictions in a healthy way. And today marks the start of me getting to share this work with you. So during this episode, we will be looking at a contradiction in the book of Proverbs, and this sermon is entitled, The Proverbial Contradiction. must ask themselves the question, what is the Bible? How you and I hold the Bible within the greater context of our faith determines a lot about what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong. What does the Bible mean to you? A few years ago, the Pew Research Center asked Christians to answer this question. 39% of Christians in America answered this question by saying that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally in all circumstances. Now, I must confess this number seemed a little low to me. The number, however, skyrockets to 55% when asking just evangelical Protestants. And 55% of evangelical Protestants profess that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally. What this means is that over half of all evangelicals in America today believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Now you may have heard of the word inerrant before, but it's important for us to define what that means because I will be referring to inerrant and inerrancy a lot during this sermon. The word inerrant, according to the new Oxford American Dictionary, means to be incapable of being wrong. Therefore, Christians say, when you come across a modern ethical dilemma, you can find advice, guidance, and wisdom from the scriptures in order to know how to deal with that problem today. So let's assume for a moment that we encounter somebody who believes that the earth is flat. Now, I have no problem standing before you today and telling you that I believe that anyone who believes the earth is flat is a fool. Human beings have known that the world is round for over 2,500 years. We have even sent people up into space to look back at the earth who gazed at the earth in all of its glory and said, yep, that thing's round. (laughs) Not only that. But every person I have encountered that believes that the earth is flat has a smartphone in their pocket. With this smartphone, the person who believes the earth is flat can punch in any address in the United States of America, and the smartphone will figure out where they are and give them directions to that place by using a global positioning system known as GPS. It is impossible for GPS to work on a flat surface. The world has to be round for GPS to work. So I have no problem saying to you, flat earthers are fools. But we are related to the flat earthers, aren't we? 
we sometimes work with the flat earthers. So the question becomes, how do you deal with the flat earther in an ethical way? Well, because there are people who believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, they would say, why don't you look up the answer to that question in the Bible? And you and I would eventually come across the book of Proverbs, the book containing wisdom. And in that book, we'd read Proverbs chapter 26, which in verse 4 tells us, Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. So the advice the Bible gives is very clear. Do not lower yourself to the folly of fools. Do not validate their arguments. Instead, shun them. Push them aside because you will ultimately be a fool if you end up validating a flat earth theory. So with that in mind, we close the Bible, we know what God wants us to do, and we continue our shunning of the flat earthers. There's just one problem. We just read in verse 4 that the author of Proverbs does not want us to answer fools according to their folly. However, the very next verse, verse 5, reads this. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. And in verse 5, the author tells us to do the exact opposite of what they told us to do in verse 4. So which one is it? Are we supposed to validate fools' opinions and their follies as we try to debate whether or not the earth is flat? Or are we supposed to completely ignore them and put them to the side and say we are not going to validate that in any way, shape, or form? To which the Bible returns that question by saying, yeah, do both. My friends, this is a contradiction in the Bible. And the contradiction divides people into two camps. The first camp is people who rush to the defense of the Bible and say, no, 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 this contradiction isn't really a contradiction. The second camp rushes to the attack of the Bible and they say this contradiction proves that the entire Bible is a fraud. Now, while these camps are very different in the people that fall into them, it's important to note that both camps assume that the Bible, by definition, can't contain contradictions. Both camps assume that the Bible has to be inerrant in order to be the Bible. Which raises the question, is the Bible actually inerrant? Because while 40% of Christians in America believe that the Bible is inerrant, that means that 60% of them don't. So let's go back in history, shall we? Let's go and tell the story of the Bible. And as we go through the history of the Bible, I want to ask you a question that we need to answer. When did Christians start to believe in the Bible's inerrancy? To answer that question, I want to invite you back to 1300 BCE, 3300 years ago. It was around that time that a man named Moses lived. And there are some Christians who believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, when Moses was born, his people had been born into slavery for the past 10 generations. 
They were crying out on a consistent basis to God, begging for God to do something about their oppression. Well, God worked through the life of Moses to liberate the Israelites from their oppression. And with a mighty and miraculous hand, God liberated the Israelites and led them to the foot of Mount Sinai. While there, God spoke at length to Moses about who God was, about what rules God wanted the Israelites to keep, and about a new kind of religion. This religion would revolve around the house of God, which was known as the tabernacle. Now, at the end of Exodus, there is a long, long list of instructions for how God wants God's house to be built. And so the Israelites begin to build the tabernacle. And by the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is completed. The very next book, Leviticus, begins with God telling the Israelites about the priesthood and the rules that the Israelites must follow for the forgiveness of sins. The priesthood is established, and the priests begin to consecrate the tabernacle. In Leviticus chapter 9, a fire comes out from God and lights the tabernacle on fire as a blessing from God, but the tabernacle does not burn. Upon seeing the fire descend from heaven, there is great rejoicing from the Israelites because they know that God is with them. Now, wherever they went, God would go with them because the tabernacle was a portable stru structure and the Israelites at this point in their history are a nomadic people. 400 years later, around the mid 10th century BCE, a man named Solomon now reigns over the kingdom of Israel. Now, Solomon's kingdom is not a nomadic people. This is their land. They live in what is modern day Jerusalem. And so the tabernacle, which is built to move around with them, no longer needs to be mobile. For this reason, Solomon goes about building the temple, which you can read about in Kings and in Chronicles. He completes the temple, which is an ornate and opulent structure. Shortly after the completion of this structure, Solomon then calls all of Israel together at the temple, and there is an elaborate consecration service. At the conclusion of that consecration service, God sends fire from heaven to consume the offering that sits before the temple. The people are ecstatic. They weep, they wail, they shout, they cheer, they fall down, they cry. There is an audible cacophony of confusion and delight as people realize once again that God is with them even after four centuries together. So the whole Israelite religion revolves around the temple in Jerusalem for about another 400 years. It all comes crashing down, however, in 586 BCE when a military superpower to the east known as Babylon launches an attack on the city of Jerusalem. There is a sense that God will save the people of Jerusalem from this attack because God is more powerful than the Babylonian gods. But that is not what God does. Instead, the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, which was meant to replace the tabernacle, and they force the remaining survivors to go back and live with them in exile in the nation of Babylon. 
Now, it's important for us to understand what's going on here because I think Christians misunderstand this today in 2021. You see, all the way back in 586 BCE, the religion revolved around the temple. And it revolved around the temple for 400 years. Not only that, but if you look at the 400 years before those 400 years, the religion revolved around the tabernacle. So all of a sudden, that center of the religion was gone. The equivalent for Christians in America today would be, imagine if somebody took all of the Bibles and destroyed them. How would you practice your religion? And that's the question that people of Judah had to answer while they lived in exile for 47 years. Now, we don't know a lot about this time period. We have some guesses here and there. But a lot of scholars believe that the Bible began to take its first shapes while the people of Judah were living in exile. People of Judah began writing down their stories from oral tradition and putting pen or quill to parchment in an effort to try and remember their stories. They did this primarily because they were worried their stories were about to be lost and that their grandchildren would have no idea where they came from. This is when the Bible started to be compiled in its earliest form. Now that moment came to a shocking end when an unexpected savior showed up at the doorstep of the Babylonians. His name was Cyrus from Persia, and he led another military superpower from the further east that ended up conquering Babylon. After destroying Babylon, he found the people of Judah, and he sent them home because Persian conquering tactics were different than Babylonians conquering tactics, and he even gave them money and officials to help them rebuild their city, and more importantly, their temple. The Persians appointed Nehemiah as the governor and a man named Ezra as the high priest. And Ezra and Nehemiah immediately got to work and began to rebuild the temple. Now this process took about 20 years to rebuild the temple, but in 516 BCE, the temple was finally completed. Ezra and Nehemiah gathered all of the people of Jerusalem together because they were about to consecrate their temple. And because the people of Jerusalem knew their history, they remember the time when the tabernacle lit on fire from heaven. They remember the time that the temple lit on fire from heaven. And they said to themselves, now is the time. Let's consecrate this temple so we can all witness firsthand that God is still with us, even though we've been through an exile. So all of the people of Jerusalem gathered around the temple, and the consecration service began. And then it ended. And this time, God did not send any fire. Oh, can you imagine the heartache? if you were there in that moment. After surviving this exile and rebuilding a temple and doing your best to bring some restoration back to life, there is this hope that God will demonstrate with a miraculous hand that God is still with you. But God doesn't demonstrate it. There are no miracles on this day. Now it's here that Ezra does something rather shocking. 
When fire doesn't come down from heaven, Ezra goes inside the temple. He then comes out with a scroll. And he begins to read the scroll that they compiled while they were in exile. He reads the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He reads the story of Moses and the liberation from slavery. He reads about the construction of the tabernacle and how God showed that God was with the Israelites. He reads for six hours to the people as they all listen to these stories. And after six hours of reading, Ezra finishes the scroll. And the people who are listening burst into a wave of ecstatic emotion. There are tears. There are shouts. There are wails. There is singing. There are people falling on their knees and worshiping God because this scroll is the new fire in their religion. Now, from 516 BCE on, the temple continued to function as the temple. But all of a sudden, there was this scroll or this scripture that people began to read and view as a bit of a mobile temple. Within a few centuries of this moment, there is the establishment of synagogues spread out throughout the diaspora. And the primary purpose of synagogue is for people to come and hear the Torah and debate what it means for them to follow it in their lives. You all of a sudden see these massive efforts to preserve and reproduce and also to translate the scriptures because there's real value in them. So while the temple in Jerusalem continued to function, these written texts allowed people to experience God outside of the city of Jerusalem. And this led to people moving away from the city and still feeling like they were very connected to their cultural identity. So more and more synagogues were being built until eventually a man named Herod the Great, who was not so great, in 37 BCE invested a lot of money into rebuilding and refurnishing the temple in Jerusalem. A few decades later, around the year zero, a boy named Jesus was born to parents Mary and Joseph. And Jesus lived out his life going between the spaces of synagogue and the institution of the temple. A few decades after he was born, Jesus was then crucified. You've probably heard this before. And about three or four decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Rome eventually got fed up with Judea and they launched an all-out attack on Jerusalem and destroyed the temple once again in 70 CE. Now, since that time, the temple has not been rebuilt, but the scriptures have been preserved. Now, it's here that we're going to mostly focus on the Christian story of the scriptures because it diverges a little bit from the Jewish story of the scriptures. The earliest writings we have about Christian theology came from the Apostle Paul, but they were written decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, those writings mostly existed as separate letters until they were finally compiled sometime in the 4th century CE, and the earliest list we have of the New Testament showed up in 381 CE from the Council of Rome. 
Now, I point this out because most Christians don't understand that from the time of Jesus's death and resurrection to the year 381 CE, there was no such thing as a New Testament. While writings existed that would eventually form the New Testament later, the early Christian tradition revolved not around the Bible, but instead around the witness and testimony of the church to Christ's resurrection. This is important to know because even after the New Testament was formally adopted in 381, the Christian religion didn't revolve around the Bible for another 1,200 years. <laughs> Instead, it revolved around the authority of the church as derived from the witness and testimony of the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you feel that having the church's authority be the center of a religion might open that religion to corruption, you are absolutely right, which is why the Reformation was so desperately needed which I have not met a Catholic who disagrees with this today. In 1517, a man named Martin Luther came along. He nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany and really got the attention of the people in the Vatican. One of his main driving ideas was the theological idea sola scriptura, which translates as by scripture alone. Martin Luther strongly believed that the Bible should have the authority over the church and not the other way around. He also believed in a priesthood of all believers that people should be able to decide for themselves who God was, especially if they could have a copy of the Bible for themselves. Now, this is important to note because Martin Luther comes up with this idea after the printing press is invented in 1440. I don't think that Martin Luther comes up with this idea of the priesthood of all believers unless he lives in an era after the printing press. Because the feasibility of everybody being able to read the Bible was simply impossible just a hundred years before he nailed these theses to the door. Now, I tell you this because it's important for us to acknowledge as Christians that technology and science often shape the way that we understand God. And all the way back in 1517 with Martin Luther, I believe it's no different. Now, one common misconception from Christians today is that sola scriptura is the same thing as biblical inerrancy. We have to be very clear that it's a very different thing than biblical inerrancy. Sola Scriptura is about claiming the authority of Scripture. Biblical inerrancy is about claiming the perfection of Scripture. And Martin Luther did not believe in the perfection of Scripture. It is well documented that he campaigned against the book of Hebrews, the book of James, the book of Jude, and the book of Revelation from being part of the canon for Protestant Christians. He thought it'd be better off if we didn't have those books in the Bible. Yeah, it's hard to believe that scripture is perfect when you're telling people we need to take some books out, right? Now, there are other scholars who debate this. It's important to understand that this is debatable. 
at the very least, those scholars have said that he strongly de-emphasized those four books because he felt they were theologically imperfect. So Martin Luther did not like those books and believed that they had flawed theology in them. And he still championed the idea of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is about the authority of the Bible, not the perfection of the Bible. Now, while Christians I know today are very, very much in favor of sola scriptura, I rarely encounter Christians who are willing to discuss the dark side of sola scriptura. Because a hundred years after Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door of the Wittenberg church in 1619, the very first women and men from Africa were sold into slavery and arrived on the shores of what would become the United States of America. Now, these men and women were traded and sold as property by white Christians. And what's hard for Christians to understand today is how can you be a Christian in church on Sunday and then go and beat your slave the other six days of the week? Well, the answer is sola scriptura. Because there was a verse in the Bible that white Christians rallied around in order to continue to be justified morally before God as they owned human beings as property. This verse is found in Leviticus chapter 25, 44. And it's a verse that takes place when God is speaking to Moses from the tabernacle all the way back at the foot of Mount Sinai. God says to Moses, as for the male and female slaves who you may have, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. Not only that, but white Christians repeatedly use the book of Joshua to justify the horrific genocide of indigenous persons in the United States of America. I tell you this because whether we like it or not, sola scriptura enabled the worst sins in American history. Which is why it's so important for us to teach these things today. We teach these things because we don't want to repeat the same sins that the people before us committed. A few centuries later, the United States of America has built its entire economy on the backs of enslaved people from African descent. In 1835, a relatively unknown English scientist named Charles Darwin took a trip to the Galapagos Islands. He stayed there for years, and in 1859, he came back and published a book called The Origin of the Species. Christians in America were not prepared for this book. After this book was published, there was a full-scale panic going on at Christian seminaries in the U.S., none more so than Princeton University in New Jersey. The faculty at Princeton became obsessed with discrediting Charles Darwin and his new theory of evolution because Princeton felt very strongly that Darwin's ideas ultimately led people to atheism. Darwin kept talking about the natural world when Princeton wanted to talk about the supernatural world. 
Darwin suggested that species adapted to their environments based on what their environments demanded. Princeton wanted everyone to believe that God was in control of all of these designs, and God had been since the very beginning. And there was this sense after the origin of the species that Sola Scriptura wasn't cutting it anymore. To have authority wasn't enough in order to combat these new ideas coming out of science. There had to be something more drastic to describe what scripture was. Now, there was a lot of discussion and people bringing forward the idea that Genesis should be able to override Darwin's work. However, it was two men from Princeton, Archibald Alexander Hodge and Benjamin Warfield, who formally introduced the doctrine of inerrancy into the Presbyterian Church's Confession of Faith. They did this in 1881. And according to the historian C.S. Cowles, he writes, this was the first time in church history in which such an article of inerrancy had been articulated and adopted by any denomination. We started this journey with the Bible with a question. When did Christians start to believe in the Bible's inerrancy? The answer really is 1881. Another question we can ask is where did Christians get the idea that the Bible is inerrant? And the answer is New Jersey. And from 1881 forward, the idea of inerrancy began to grab a hold at a rapid and alarming rate as people began to deal with more and more scientific discoveries over the course of time. So much so that in 1962, the Catholic Church held its second Vatican Council and decided to adopt scriptural inerrancy as its official position. We read from that council, Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. This is a rather stunning turn of events from the Catholic Church, isn't it? <laughs> now, that was 1962. And the chances are that if you've had an interaction with somebody or personally believe that the Bible is inerrant, it was influenced deeply by what happened in 1978 in the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago was the official meeting site for the first meeting of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. There were over 200 church leaders at this council, representing over 30 denominations. And they came together and over three days hashed out what inerrancy looked like across their different denominations. Let's read a few statements from that statement. We read, the following statement affirms this inerrancy of scripture afresh, making clear our understanding of it and warning against its denial. A few lines down, the statement reads, being holy and verbally God-given, scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than, it, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And this statement is essentially what handed people in America, Christians in America, the idea that the Bible needs to be inerrant. 
And it's the reason that when we read these verses in Proverbs that offer two conflicting ideas about how we should respond to fools, that we are immediately divided into two camps because both camps assume that the Bible can't have contradictions. And when we look closely at this Chicago statement, there are three things I just feel like I have to point out. I could talk about this statement all day, but I'm not going to do that to you on this podcast. There are three things we have to point out because there are all these articles attached to the end of this statement. And I believe that we have to address some of those articles. Article 14 reads, we being the committee, affirm the unity and internal consistency of scripture. My friends, this is a lie. It's a lie because there is no internal consistency of scripture. <laughs> if you don't believe me, read Genesis 1 and 2 and realize that there are two vastly different creation stories right next to each other. If you don't believe me, read the book of Ruth, which supports interracial marriage, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which vehemently condemn interracial marriage. If you don't believe me, read Kings and Chronicles, which tell the same story of David taking a census. But one story tells us that God tempted David to take the census, while the other tells us that Satan tempted David. If you don't believe me, read the story of Jehu from Elisha's perspective. Elisha is convinced that God has ordained Jehu as God's messenger. And then turn your Bible to the book of Hosea and read about how Hosea believes that Jehu acted against the will of God. If you don't believe me, then read the story of Jesus on the cross and realize that the Gospels can't agree on what the last words of Jesus actually were. If you don't believe me, read the story of Christ's resurrection and realize that all four Gospels record different people being there when Jesus rose from the dead. This idea that the Bible has an internal consistency and never disagrees with itself is a lie. And we have to let it go in order to become more biblically literate. Article 19 of the Chicago Statement reads, we affirm that a confession of the full authority Full infallibility and full inerrancy of scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. My friends, this is a lie. I say it's a lie because the Christian faith began with the birth of Jesus, which happened sometime around the year zero. For the next nearly 400 years, there was no New Testament. Which means that all of the early Christians, where our faith began, did not have a Bible to affirm the infallibility of. <laughs> not only that, but from 381 to 1517, only clergy had access to the scriptures. And so to say that you have to affirm the infallibility of scripture to understand and participate in the Christian faith is to deny all of those Christians their own spiritual journeys. Not only that, I'm fired up on this podcast this morning, not only that, but when you consider the story that's in the Bible and you go all the way back to Mount Sinai, when God is speaking to Moses and setting up the beginning of the Jewish religion, 
there is a moment where God says, I want you to build me a tabernacle. God did not give Moses a Bible. Instead, God gave the Israelites a building to build their religion around. Now, don't read too much into this. Don't think that I'm all of a sudden pushing for us to build our religions around buildings. What is important for us to acknowledge is that the religion that is contained in the Bible began not with a Bible. The last point I need to make on Article 19 is this. The Chicago Statement says we affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. This is a lie because it implies that you have to read to understand God. My friends, you don't have to read. God can speak to the illiterate as well as to the literate. Which brings us to the third article I want to talk to you about, which is Article 16. We read from the Chicago Statement, We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the Christian faith throughout the Christian faith's history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or as a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. My friends, that's a lie. When you consider where inerrancy came from, the very first denomination adopted it from a scholastic institution as a reaction to Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species. Not only that, but when you consider that the Bible in some way, shape, or form has been around for 2,500 years and then beyond that in oral tradition, we have to be very honest about the idea of inerrancy. The idea that the Bible is inerrant is a very recent idea in the Bible's history. It began really in 1881. Before that, nobody thought the Bible needed to be inerrant. Martin Luther, the face of sola scriptura, would disagree with biblical inerrancy. The Apostle Paul would disagree with biblical inerrancy. Jesus Christ would disagree with biblical inerrancy. On and on it goes until we realize that this just recently showed up in the Bible's history. And if you want to believe in biblical inerrancy, that's fine. More power to you. However, we all have to agree that the idea that the Bible is inerrant is a new and liberal idea in the Bible's history and not the tradition. I have to tell you that as I was prepping this sermon, my blood boiled reading this statement from the Chicago Statement because they are blatantly lying to people when they say that we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. That is a lie. And inerrancy is not the tradition. My friends, every religious person at some point faces the temptation 
to believe that their religion is what makes them valuable. This is called idolatry. And I have found that in my lifetime, the practice of believing that the Bible is inerrant leads to a form of idolatry. When people hold up the Bible and say, all we need to know about God is contained in this book, it almost discredits all of the things around it and says that God cannot be learned about from outside of the book. And so while we come across what seems to be insignificant contradictions, like in Proverbs 26, we realize that these contradictions offer us a way of thinking about the Bible that breaks us from the addiction and desire to make it into an idol. Contradictions are important and valuable because they help us overcome the temptation to turn the Bible into an idol. And when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is important, it's valuable, it's helpful, but it's ultimately something that serves us trying to understand God better. And when we say that the only way to God is through this book, we are actually attempting to domesticate God who is infinitely bigger than the book. The reaction to contradictions divides us into two camps. My hope is that through this series and today's sermon, that you might see that there is a third camp, one that embraces the contradiction and accepts that there is something to be learned from when we hold these ideas in tension. From the book of Proverbs, this contradiction teaches me that the Bible is not perfect, that the Bible is the work of humans, and that the Bible is still good. May we remember, my friends, that God is infinitely bigger than the Bible. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in the contradictions. <laughs>